As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. We're joined as usual by The Athletic's Matt Slater. And our guest today is Maheta Malango, the new chief exec of the union that represents the professional footballers in England, the PFA. Uh, Maheta replaced Gordon Taylor to become the union's first new chief exec in 40 years. Previously a lawyer, he was chief executive for four years at Spanish club Real Mallorca after almost a decade with a respected legal firm based in Madrid. He was also a professional player in England for clubs including Brighton, Oldham and Lincoln. He's now leading an organisation that has faced a series of challenges both on and off the pitch and within the PFA itself. Uh, Maheta Malango, welcome to the Business of Sport podcast. I was listening to you on the BBC's uh, Today programme on Radio 4 and they began, as you know, by listing that you're a former player, a former chief exec, a trained lawyer, speaks six languages, and are the son of a diplomat, and then went, are you the right man for the job? Or as some people think, should it have gone to someone who's a more famous footballer? Now, does that say more about the media or more about football? And is that what you're encountering in your first six months in the job? Let me first correct the fact that my, my dad is not a diplomat. Right. My dad is a psychologist, actually. Right. Um, specialized, actually, in, which is relevant for the PFA, is specialized in handling people who have problems with um, addictions. So drug, right. alcohol, this type of stuff, and he's specialized in, in family therapy. So, so, so uh, you know, I'm glad that they gave so much credit to my dad, but, but no, he's not, he's not diplomat. <laughs> he's a psychologist. So my language skills don't come, you know, from the fact that he's a diplomat, but rather from, from the fact that I've, I've been lucky enough to, to travel around and come from a multicultural family where my mom is Italian and my dad is from Congo. So, so that was the beauty of, of the thing. And coming back to, to your question, you know, in the end, I think it, it is my role to, to explain to people that this was not a political election. People ask me, what is your manifesto? And, and what I say to people is, it, it's not about a manifesto. It is about an, an organization which is, you know, sitting at all the important tables in, in, in British football. Of course, the knowledge of football is a plus, 
but it's nowhere near sufficient to be able to run an organization with this size of budget, this, this size of expectation, this visibility. My job, I guess, is, is to reposition the PFA as what it is, a union. My job is to make people understand that, yes, of course, the fact that I've played football and the fact that I've played in different countries, and of course, will help me understanding the way player thinks. But again, I think, and this is my message to the players as well, you know, being a player is not sufficient to hold certain positions. It's not sufficient to be a coach. It's not sufficient to be a chief exec. It's just not sufficient. So yes, it's a plus, but not sufficient. And hopefully my experience of the pitch, complemented by what I've learned on the pitch, hopefully makes me the, the, the person who can maybe kind of bring the, the PFA to 21st century with a starting point, which I think is very positive, which is the fact that it's a very solid organization, which is at all the important tables of British football. And this is very important. And, um, and yeah, time will tell if I'm the right candidate or not. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of time, how long do you think it will take for you to get the PFA roughly where you want it to be or for you to feel that you are established in your role? Uh, Mark Warburton the other day was talking about how when he worked in, in banking, one of the partners said to him, you need to take at least a year before you feel settled i'm watching this late night tv documentary on sky at the moment which is amazing the history of american late night i reckon every host of american late night tv probably took three years to feel comfortable and perform to the best of their ability i'm certainly not in a rush to do anything just for the sake of doing it you know one thing that i learned over time is that in this type of project you know one thing is what you see from outside of the building a very different thing is what happens inside of the building, you know, and, and I think I need to understand first what's going on inside of the building. Um, I think I need to, to take the time to understand what do the player want, you know, because it, it, it ain't about, about me. It's about, it's about what do the players want? What do the former player want? Because, you know, this organization is very special because we not only represent players who are active, but also 50,000 players who no longer play active football, you know? And this means that you need to really make an effort to understand what they want. And then based on that, I guess my plan basically is to use those initial months because I started on July the 1st officially. Um, so that's about two, two and a half months now in, in the role. And the idea is to, to do two things. One, understand what the members want so that you're able to come up with a mission statement. So what does the PFA stand for? I think this is crucial. And second, understand what type of of financial means do you have to be able to achieve those goals? And once you have the two ideas, then I think you can come up with a strategic plan. So my goal is probably by, by March to be able to, to, to put together a strategic plan, which hopefully will start as of July the 1st you know, um, of next year. So, so I think we're very much in this, still in this transition period to, to be able to understand what, what the players want, come up with a mission statement, and then come up with a strategic plan that I'm, that I'm planning to basically get approved by, by the boards because we have two new boards now. Um, and then based on that, being able to, to make it public. I think we need to be an organization where people know what we're doing, why we're doing it, what are our priorities. But I think this needs to be done with the right timing. I think we're not in a rush to do anything, but rather to do the right thing at the right time. Mehta, I mean, anyone that, that knows anything about the PFA, certainly in this country, if you said it to them, they'd, they'd, they'd instantly say Gordon Taylor. He became synonymous with the organization vice versa. He'd been there for 40 years. And unfortunately, towards the tail end of his time at the PFA, the question was, there were really two, you know, why are you still there? You know, isn't it time to move on? And his pay. Those two questions really dominated any kind of conversation about the union. And a lot of the good stuff 
was forgotten. A lot of the good stuff but never really got any attention. I don't think players were even aware of it. So how hard have you found it to deal with that, to move on from that? Because I think it's going to take some time. It is very unfortunate that the PFA has been in the press too often for the wrong reason over the last few months. Um, and to be honest, I think it does no justice, as you rightly said, to the actual work of the PFA. It's a fantastic organization. You know, honestly, I was a member myself, so I benefited from the PFA, you know, um, uh, because I did some some studies which were partly funded by the PFA. And I, I need to be honest, you know, frankly, it's a great organization. I think you always need to separate the people from the organization. I know sometimes it's difficult, but, but I think it, it is not, it is not, uh, uh, or I'm hopeful that it will not be going for the one-man show. But rather, let's go back to talking about the PFA and what the PFA does. And I think it's a great opportunity for, for us to do that. I think there is a, a change of guard, not just in the PFA, but also in other key organizations in British football. You know, change of guard in, at the Premier League, change of guard at the FA. Would, would that be just about to also join the organization, which I think is a, is a, very, it's a very positive step in the right direction, um, myself at the PFA. So I think there's a nice opportunity for us to kind of push the reset button in general. You know, also the EFL with Trevor Birch, with someone that I that I rate very much, um, so, so I think it's um, it's an interesting time. I think uh, change of guard in all the key organization. I think I'm not here to judge the past. I'm here to talk about the future, you know, and what I can do or what we can do for the organization. And and I think I'm I'm very positive about the future, to be honest. And I now went around and, and met every single Premier League squad. So I went to all the dressing rooms, pretty intense as you can imagine. But it was very useful because you know you talk to people and. Even the very top players say, well, you know, well, great, you know, you go to Menu and you talk to, to Mata, you talk to, you know, you talk to Pogba, you talk to, the, you know, to, to Tom Heaton, who is also part of our board. And, and you can see that even at the top level, you can be relevant, you know, because they understand that now, you know, I, I think it makes more sense than ever to have a union on board because there are certain stuff that they cannot solve on their own. And I think there's a recognition about that. So, again, so far, so good. Uh, very positive. Let's see what, what the future holds, you know. You talk about the meetings that you've had with, with, with the Premier League, but you also, in a previous answer, talked about former professionals, lower league professionals, uh, women players, of course, as well. So can one mission statement encompass that whole scale of players that are, are under your guidance? That's where I believe the fact that I played football puts me in a position to understand certain things maybe in a different way. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So this, this question is very recurrent. They say, well, you know, is there something in common between, you know, a, a multimillionaire of the Premier League and someone in League Two? And I'm like, yes. Because when you sit on the bench, when you're out of the squad, when you're injured, when you try to move clubs and you don't allow to, irrespective of how much you make a month, you're suffering. This, this is across the board. Another example, when you stop finishing playing, 99% of the player needs to work because of money and 1% need to work because of purpose because you need to be able to, your, to say to your son something about your life. So what am I doing? You know, and, 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 you know, it sounds like, like trivial, but it is not. And, and I know people who have won, you know, I don't want to, to mention any specific name, but I know people who have won two Champions League and, and not being on the bench, being a starter and now being struggling big time because, you know, the, 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 the kids ask you, what do you do, daddy? And, and there's no answer. And they keep talking about the Champions League they won 10 years ago, and this is gone. And the industry is such that the industry uses you, and once you're done, you're done, and there are new stars, and new stars, and new stars. So, so it's beautiful to go to those restroom rooms and tell them exactly that. And that's what I, I, I said to the Premier League players. I said, what we have in common 
is that when you stop playing, the phone goes silent. And I do think that, that we have stuff to offer to them because I think it's a generation of players who care, who understand, who want to be part of a discussion, who want to be part of a journey. So, so in response to your question, yes, I truly believe that there is something in common between all those guys. And I think that's where maybe the union can help. That is a fascinating point, that, because having just come off the back of covering the Olympics, you talk to so many Olympians. As soon as that four-year cycle finishes, as soon as they finish, everything that has defined them for that two years, three years, four years of training to get to Tokyo has gone. And then some of them start again, some of them don't, some of them think about what's next. But suddenly you lose a lot of what makes you you. And as you say, it doesn't matter whether you're on five million quid a year or, you know, 500 quid a week. The fall is more brutal the higher you are. You are, you know, because what people don't, don't understand is that in the end, it's not just playing in the Premier League, it's all the things which go with playing in the Premier League. You go to a restaurant, people recognize you, you know, you're treated in a different way. You've got the recognition of the people, the family puts you at a certain level, and all of a sudden, you, you're no one anymore. You, you need to kind of reconstruct a new eye, if you wish, no? And, 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 and I went through that myself, you know, because in football, when you get to 35, you're old. You know, so you're the old guy in the dressing room, but in real life, you're a kid. And this happened to me, you know, all of a sudden I turned up at Baker McKenzie and I had to start from down the ladder, you know, and said to you, oh, you know, watch out with the client, the client here, the client there. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I was dealing with the press and I'm playing in front of, of big crowds and now you're telling me about the, the client, you know. I can tell you, Mark, it, it's not an easy transition, you know, it, it's really not mentally, it's very tough. Some of them also made, made investment without thinking that, you know, when you have a big house, you've got big maintenance. So when you make 50, 50K a week, that's fine to pay, you know, 5,000K a week of maintenance. But when you stop getting this income and you go and be the assistant coach at a random team and make 20K a year, you know, things can turn sour very quickly if you haven't made like the right type of investment, et cetera. So it's very interesting to, to have those conversations with the players and make them understand this type of, of situations, you know? But so you, you're talking about how much people earn. I mean, obviously um, in the UK, that's, that's you know, sort of a vulgar topic. We don't really sort of do that. But of course, there is one exception, football. We talk about it all the bloody time. And it was, it, again, it's to go back to Gordon Taylor and the PFA, that was one of the key key topics. And we, we know that you're taking much less money than than he was. Uh, we know that there was a basic pay with, with Gordon. Every three years, he got a big bonus because of the TV contract. Can I just ask, are you, are you still going to take a bonus every three years that's l- directly linked to the TV contract? I wish. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> no, 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 look. Okay. No, uh- well, look, just following on from that, because I think... I imagine these are the things that were in the QC-led review that, in many ways, paved the way for your getting the job. Are you going to publish that QC-led review of the PFA? Yeah. Let me first go back to the first question, and I promise I'll answer both. The way that that we see the organization going forward is, is full transparency. So, you know, my salary will be published you know, as part of, of, of the publication of the account and, you know, there's nothing to hide and I'm, I'm very happy for people to, to see what I'm earning because there's not a secret, you know. The second thing I want to tell you is that as part of the, the change of governments of the PFA, what we've done is two things. We have now a new players board, which, be, which has been elected by the, mem- by, the, by the members, and now we have an operational board. That operational board comprises the chair and the vice chair of the players board, so two footballers, 
comprises four non-executive directors, very top people. So people from Amazon, TikTok, vice chair of, of, the, uh, of the Commonwealth game, um, the former secretary general of the Turkish um, Federation. So I would say the top level of corporate governance, of finance, of, of sports regulation. So, so it is a very different organization from what it used to be. And also there are two subcommittees, one of them being about remuneration. So every single salary in this organization is not set by me on my own, but rather it goes through that committee, which in turn is supervised by another committee, which is called GRAC, Governance, Risk, Audit and Compliance. So the point I'm trying to make is that I don't know how it was run prior to June the 30th, but from July the 1st, I think we are the golden standard in terms of governance and compliance. And it's very important because I'm a lawyer <laughs> and I want to stress that I'll make mistakes. It will be things that we will, will agree or disagree, but this will be compliant, 110% compliant. Now, second question that, that you raised, the, the report. The report, if I'm not mistaken, was actually completed about two years ago. Um, for whatever reason, it, it was not published at the time. Um, I think it is a decision which needs to be taken, not just by me, but by the board, you know, by the operational board and the players board. This is something that has been, is, is under discussion and probably will come to a, um, you know, a, a final decision in the next few weeks, you know. So it's, uh, it's an ongoing conversation there. Whereas I understand that this report was critical for the change of the future of this organization. And in fact, my appointment stems from that report. What I want to tell you is that 85% of the recommendations included in that report have been completed. And the 15% which left is basically now under, under my jurisdiction, so to say, to be able to complete it. So, so whereas I understand the interest of the, of the journalists to know about this report and, and, and will provide an answer to that, I think what people need to know is that the recommendations have been implemented, dealt with, and whatever is left is, is a question of timing, but it will also be completed. So just to be absolutely clear and transparent about the situation. That's fine. That's good to hear. I don't know if this bit is in the report or not. I genuinely haven't seen the report, but I do wonder, and I'm thinking about the last few years, really, of conversations around the PFA, if we are funding the PFA in the best and most efficient, optimal way, not just, well, for football, for the PFA's members too. There is this very strong direct link between TV contracts and PFA budget. Now, I don't know if Mark's a member of union. I am. It comes out of my monthly salary. It is a percentage of what I earn. That is how most unions in this country are, are, are funded. I wonder if your members would feel a closer engagement with the union, would know more about what you do, what you can do for them, if they funded it in a more direct way. I think it's a, it's a very good and legitimate question. And, and I want to give you a straight answer. I, I strongly disagree with the view of people saying that the PFA is funded by the Premier League or is funded because to me, this is not true. The matter of the fact is the TV money stems from the performance of the players on the pitch. That performance then was basically made his by the clubs, which then in turn gave the, the, the league the possibility to sell it collectively. But at the source, this belongs to the players. The players are the stars of the show. The players are the actors. And, and I'm amazed sometimes when I see, and that's why I think we've got an opportunity. I think we talk about the clubs, we talk about the leagues, we talk about the fans. <laughs> what about the players? If there's no players, there's no football. So this is a very good question. And I've answered that on a number of occasions. I said, well, I don't feel that that will get funded by anyone. We're just receiving what I believe is a fair share 
of what belongs to the players. And by the way, in other countries, it is by law that the trade union gets money. For example, in Spain, it is by law that it says the X percentage of the TV rights deal goes to the players. And it's interesting because in Spain, they talk about the percentage. So if it was a percentage in our case, we'd be, make, we'd be receiving much more money than what we receive. Here, it is not a percentage. So I understand the question, which is a legitimate one. But again, I think here we need to reposition the role of, of all of the actors and understand that in the end, without the players, there's no game. The PFA is playing a key role in terms of helping those players transitioning post-career. I think the PFA is, is or, or should be even more the voice of the player in a number of, of circumstances. Um, as it has been the case, for example, now during the, the COVID, you know, with the financial fair play regulation, with the salary cuts, with the project restart, with the vaccination. So I think there are so many ways where, where we can show people that we're relevant to try to reach a solution, which I think justifies um, more than enough the reason why we receive that money. The standard thing in, a, in an interview with, with someone new in their job, a, a chief exec or a chairman or a manager, is, is to ask, what's at the top of your to-do list? And then I look at all the issues that kind of, kind of affect players and former players and football, whether it's dementia, obviously, whether it's racism, whether it's physical and mental well-being, diversity, a, a World Cup that could be every two years, the rise of the women's game, COVID jabs, players blamed for for not being on or not being on furlough or giving a percentage of their salary to the NHS, whatever it has been over the last eighteen months, and I go, I genuinely have no idea how you could prioritise any of. That. It comes down again to understanding what do the members want? What do they see as being their priority? And it is? I'll give you an example. So um, during the, the Premier League visit that I did, um, there was one common theme, for example, which was we play too many games. So fixture congestion, for example, was probably not uh, a number one priority prior you know, to visiting those clubs. After talking to those players and to the managers, by the way, to people like you know, Jurgen Klopp, very clearly, there's a, you know, an almost unanimous position in saying we play too many games. And I think they're right. And it's not just a question of player well-being. It's a question, even if you want to look at this from a business angle, if those players are not showing the best version of themselves, what we see on the pitch is not what the fans want to see. So if the fans don't see a good show, they don't want to pay for the TV rights. If they don't pay for the TV rights, we're making less money. And, and so on. So, so there's no point thinking that those guys are machines who can just play week on Tuesday, travel, you know, how many kilometers, different time zone, come back on Saturday and, and perform, and then again on Tuesday, and then again. No. And then, then people ask, well, why are the TV rating drop? Well, they drop because maybe what you see is just a shadow of, of the actual player that, that, that you know, because he's not able to perform at the right level. And I think we've seen examples in Spain, for example, of top players. I don't, I don't need to name specific names, but there's two big players, but two big teams who were not able to play 25 games last season. And this is because when you play 17, 70, 70, 70. At some stage, your body says enough. What can you do about that? If all the, if the Premier League players are saying to you and managers, we play too many games, as the chief exec of the PFA, what do you do? That's where I believe the fact that we are sitting at the right table should enable us to, to push for what we think is right. And in the end, if the PFA is bringing, I think, 30 plus percent of players to the European Championship, that, that's a lot of players. <laughs> and, and, and similar figures, I believe, uh, for the World Cup. Well, maybe at some stage we need to think about what we do because we're not just happy to just have it, you know? I think there's a channel which is FIFPRO uh, to be able to, to have our, our voice heard um, at international level. And we need to have a conversation, see exactly what, 
what's going on because I think it's not sustainable. It comes to a, to a stage where where they need to listen to the to the players who, who generate value for the competition. Would you consider a, a 60 game a season cap, Meheta, for players? I don't think that there is a, a solution which is just a specific number of games. It's, it's a question, I think, of sitting down. You know, the good thing about my my track record is the fact that I've worked for a club. So, so, so I understand kind of the other side of, of, of the coin. You know, I've had the chance to work with organizations such as FIFA. So, so I'm the, I understand that it's not just about the interest of the players. It's trying to find a solution that then is good for everyone. But starting from the point which is the players are the one who generate the show and we, we need to put them in the best possible condition you know, to, to, to give us a, their best version, you know, and not just, as I said, a, a shadow of what they're capable of doing. You mentioned FIFPRO and, and FIFPRO are the global football players union of which PFA is a, is a, is a key member. Um, of course, everyone in world football now is talking about the international match calendar. This has been the debate that football's been waiting to have really for a long time. In many ways, COVID has postponed this debate. Well, it's now come hurtling back and everybody is fighting their corner. No one wants to give up anything. No one wants to give up games. That's one of the problems here. And of course, the big thing that's grabbed so much attention is FIFA are suggesting biennial World Cups. They're pretty much suggesting a big summer tournament every summer. Now, Arsene Wenger has come out with a a draft calendar that appears to make space. He says it will mean less travel, certainly no more games. He's even suggesting for some players, maybe in South America or Asia, it'll be fewer games. Now, I've been talking to people about this for, well, pretty much only this for about a week and a half. And they like bits of it. They like the gist of the idea. There's a real divide between Europe, clubs and what have you in terms of the actual biennial World Cups. But the concept of a more focused calendar, I think everyone can get behind that. Where people have massive problems is they just don't see the room. They don't see any give in Wenger's calendar because they know that... The clubs are not going to stop wanting to market their players and go on pre-season tours and satisfy sponsors around the world. They know that if you start taking games or competitions away from one part of the world, you create problems in that part of the world. It's just a very idealistic best case scenario calendar that Wenger's put together here. Is there room for two World Cups? That's my first question. And, and then my sort of second question is, how are we going to get around this? Because... I am struggling to see where the compromise is. This is probably the, the lawyer part of me who speaks. You know, I, I haven't seen any single document about that World Cup pr- proposal. And I've asked for it to FIFA as well, and they haven't seen a single paper. I don't like to talk about speculation and suggestion until I've seen something tangible. So, so we've not been provided with any information. So what we're reading is what it is in the press. So, you know, I, I, I prefer to, to wait until I see something on my desk to, to have an opinion because I, I haven't seen anything, which I think also needs to make us reflect. Because if we're bringing so many players to, to, the, to, to those tournaments, I think we need, we need to be part of that conversation. But again, I haven't seen a paper. Now, is there a space for more games? We need to go back to the source of it. What is the maximum number of games you need to see to be able to see the best version of the players? How can we ensure that what we see on the pitch is the best that we can see? Because what people tend to forget is that in the end nowadays, football is not just competing with other sports. We're competing with Netflix, with Facebook, with, with, with the likes in terms of entertainment. So again, even if you look at this from a business perspective, this is not favoring us as football versus other choices. And again, people say, well, why, the, why my kids don't follow football as I used to? Because they see a game where the tempo is slow because the players are tired. 
I mean, you know, and, and of course we can think about the rules and, and you know, and adapting it to the, to the new kind of way of, con of, 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 um, of consuming kind of, um, um, you know, products. I understand that. And the new generation, of course, we need to, to think about that. But first and foremost, are we really seeing the best version? Do my kids really see the best version of those players with, you know, to, to, to fall in love with the game? I'm not sure because it's just physically impossible to travel so much, to play so many games and to be fit and to be motivated and to be always... And, and then in the end, you bring your kids to the stadium and what they see is not what they should be seeing. So, so yes, of course, now we're pleasing everyone and everyone's making money, but in the long run, we are killing the game. This is a reality. We're killing the game because this is not like basketball where maybe your actual playing time is shorter. This is 90 minutes. You know, you, you cannot compare a, a basketball schedule with a football schedule and we're, we're almost getting there. <laughs> you know, with, with far more minutes played. Can you strike i'm someone who always believes in cooperation in always working together but, but i think it, it will come to a stage where people will really be fed up and the thing that some people don't understand is that this generation of player is not just be happy to be told my relationship to authority has nothing to do with their relationship with authority in, in my generation if my dad said do this i'll just do it there, there was no questioning about why but this generation they want to understand they want to be part of the decision and they're not just happy to be told. So I think people need to understand that we'll come to a stage where those guys may be saying, I'm not having it. They understand the power of their voice. They've got strong platforms of, of kind of making things heard you know, across the globe. And I think some people still underestimate the power of the player's voice. One of the reasons I said, can you strike is, and, and on every podcast myself and Matt do, we always refer to North American sports at, at some point as a comparison. There obviously have been strikes in North American sports in the past. The other interesting thing, certainly the NFL, for example, is they have a collective bargaining agreement, the players' unions in the NFL. And you have American experience, don't you, in the sense that basketball owners brought you into one of your CEO jobs in football. But players players' unions have been at the table in all the highest, highest negotiations to thrash out a collective bargaining agreement. So everybody knows salary bans, number of games, etc., etc., for a set period, and then they go in again to a collective bargaining agreement. Is that the kind of system you would like to see going forward, then everybody knows where they stand legally, actually, with your with your lawyer background. Well, I think we need to acknowledge that society has changed, football has changed, things evolve. And I think the recent you know, events in football have shown that we should at least reassess the traditional assumption about governments. And again, I'm just amazed to see people talking about such major change without having the players as part of the conversation, but not just you know, having a few discussions with a few legends. I'm talking about players being formally represented at the table and have a real decision power because they are the stars of the show. So it's not, it's not one more stakeholder. And I'm just amazed to see that it's as if you get the money, go and play and shut up. It doesn't work like this. It just doesn't work like this. And not with this generation of player again. It's a generation of players, smart players. They've got an opinion, they've got a smart opinion. And they understand that certain stuff needs to be solved collectively and not individually. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that we're that some of those institutions are going in the right direction in terms of you know having kind of councils where you can discuss and, and different kind of stakeholders, kind of committees. But again, I think you're making a good point, Mark. You know, I think we may probably need to kind of go a step further. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. 
It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. As far as former players are concerned, I have never in all my time working in sport in a variety of sports seen the anger that some of the families of former players who have suffered from dementia or and and or have, have died from dementia have displayed towards the PFA in the last decade, really, and how much they feel let down by the union before you arrived. Now, there are very much differing opinions on that and I appreciate that and Gordon Taylor has been on this podcast in the past making his points on that going forward what would your message be to those families of footballers and footballers themselves who have suffered from dementia it's a very tough topic it's very emotional you know I've I've had the chance to meet with a number of families so in fact the very first meeting I had as a chief exec was with a family who was affected by dementia and is one of those where I think if, if you try to claim that you understand what they go through, you're not, and you'll never, because you either go through that yourself or you, you never understand. So there's no point you kind of claim that you understand because you don't. Um, now, what, what you can do is two things. Is one, acknowledging that there are people who are suffering and try to see how you can help them. And this is happening now. So you've got people who suffer and see how you can help them. And second, obviously research is ongoing and I'm a great believer in research, but I think we need to make sure that my kids, that your kids don't put themselves at risk by playing you know, the game that they love. Um, and whereas I think heading the ball is, is a key part of football, I think there are ways to try to at least mitigate the risk, if, you know, um, which can happen in the future. And I think that's what we're working on in terms of the new um, heading guidelines, etc. And I think that's what we need to do. You know? um, so on the one hand, try to find a solution for the, the people who are suffering now. But I think the important thing, that's what I said to the families, I think here it's important to understand what is the role of the PFA. The PFA is the union, the PFA is the advocate. And as an advocate, what we should be held accountable for is how hard do we push the stakeholders who have a responsibility with those players to deal with it? Because just to be clear, the PFA has not benefited from the services of those players. Those players played for clubs, who are the employers, and legally speaking, those are the people who need to look after the players. And our role as a union is to push those stakeholders to do what they have to do. And it was great to talk to those families and for them to understand that they were very kind of thankful for me to kind of clarify what we are, you know. And I said, please hold me accountable if I don't push hard. 
And if we haven't pushed hard over the last few years, you know, we'll take the blame, P push us. But I think we need to understand the PFA is not the employer. The PFA does not write the rules. So, so I think it's important to understand who is who in, in this kind of map of, of the various stakeholders. And the PFA is not the FA. The PFA is not the Premier League. The PFA is not the clubs. So, so I think, you know, we are working on that. Does the PFA have a responsibility on behalf of its members to go to the employers, to go to the governing bodies with increased research, with more research, and go, this is why they need protecting? And, and the argument before you arrived was that there was £125,000 a year going to dementia research from the PFA, which was, well, I can't even do the percentage off the top of my head, but it was a lot less than the former chief exec salary. And, you know, if you flog a few of the Lowry paintings that the PFA hold in its vaults, then that could pay for an awful lot more research. That would be the argument. PFA needs to be pushing those stakeholders. Yes, I agree with you. Um, in fact, I'll give you one example. I was saying to the families, for example, that I think we need to achieve that the that dementia is, is, is acknowledged as an industrial disease. So this, this is, to me, the first step. We need to make sure that this is acknowledged as what it is, an industrial disease. Sorry, I recently had a meeting with the government, with the with sports ministry, to push that idea. The Scottish, for example, trade union is doing the same. So we need to be able to, to push for that. That's an example. You know? so, so yes, we need to be the advocates for that. Um, and we, if we haven't pushed enough, we need not to acknowledge that and do better. So I think I think one of the the real issues that, that the PFA have had in the past, and everyone involved in football, is this. Look, no one is suggesting this is easy, right? This is very very complicated stuff. I know Mark and I, we you know we, we coach and we enrolled in, in in sort of kids sport as well. And and when people start using language like industrial disease, which let's not forget was in a coroner's report. Was it 10, 15 years ago when Jeff Astle died? You know, that that was written down. That was an expert opinion on cause of death. That concept has been out there for a while. But if it becomes kind of wider football policy, a wider acknowledgement in the football community that heading the ball can lead to an industrial disease, I think you start sending quite a complicated and dangerous message out to parents about the safety of this sport. And then it's, well, do you want people playing football or not? And this is where I think Gordon Taylor, your predecessor, really wrestled with this. I, I've spoken to him about it quite a few times. You know, he fundamentally believed that football was a good thing, fundamentally, in his heart, and that we should be encouraging people to play it. And I think he, I think he worried and, and grappled with this issue of the danger of a very particular part of the game. Is that something you feel as well? Do you feel that we've got to be very careful with how we approach this? We need to give the chance to people to make an educated choice. I want my kids to play hockey. Well, if you play hockey, those are the risks that you incur. I want my kids to, to do boxing. Well, if you do boxing, this is the reason. I want to do rugby. I want to do... So each sport has these kind of dangers. To me, it is very important that we continue going down the path of, of science and research in terms of understanding what are the risks. What is the percentage of, ex of, of exposure? Because yes, you've got a number of people affected, but what does this represent in the whole of things? You know, what is my risk? Is it, is, is it red? Is it amber? Is it green? Is it, you know, so, so I think this is what we need to continue kind of going down to, to really provide the opportunity for people to make an educated decision. Then it's up for everyone to decide whether they want to play football or not. Football has given me a lot. So I'm certainly not the person who would say, and football is, is not just football, is what it brings to you in terms of, you know, meeting new people, opening up your mind, playing with people of all sorts of background, 
the more wealthiest, the more humble. For, for me, football goes beyond just the actual kind of game. And I think it is, it is, it is a great sport that I love. But at the same time, I think we need to find out what this, this is putting at risk our kids, you know, um, and, and to which extent and how can we maybe kind of mitigate the risk without losing the essence of football, of the football that, that we love. Boardroom diversity comes in in many different forms, not not just skin colour, but obviously gender, background as well, education, so many, so many different ways. But in these early stages of your job, how diverse are you finding the meetings that you are involved in at the highest level? It's interesting because we're having big debates, you know, even, even within the players' board and, and the operations board about, for example, taking the knee. Why should they continue, what not? And I think I'm, I'm extremely proud to be the chief exec of an organization which did not look at my color when it comes to hire me. You know, I'm not the friend of anyone specific in UK football. I'm not linked to any specific journalists who push my agenda during the, you know, the selection process. I'm not friend with anyone. All I did is work hard. I'm the son of a psychologist who came from Congo in Switzerland and, and worked his, his way through. An Italian mother with white with blue eyes. So I feel as white as I feel black. And I'm here. And I think this country has shown that one of the key authorities in, in football has been elected based on meritocracy. Forget about color, about meritocracy. And I think this is such a fantastic message because it means that a kid in Lincoln, white kid in Lincoln, has the same chance as a black guy from London or a son of an immigrant living in Birmingham. You know? And I think the PFA is showing that this is possible. I know you can talk a lot, but facts are facts. And the PFA, the player, have elected someone who sounds and looks like me. <laughs> You know, and this, I think this is the, the most beautiful method that can send to people in terms of diversity. And then if you add to that, that we have uh, an operational board, which out of six people, you've got two black people, two white people, a, a Turkish lady. <laughs> you've got a players board with a number of people who are diverse from different divisions. So I think I'm, I'm very proud to be the chief executive organization, which is leading the way in terms of governance and leading the way in terms of diversity. How do you get other football organizations to follow your lead? To first acknowledge what the PFA is doing in terms of changing the narrative, you know? It's been all good to, to use the PFA as a scapegoat for a number of things up until June the 30th. The PFA from July the 1st is golden standard in terms of governance and is leading the way in terms of diversity. And, and I think that's why interviews such as this one with a top publication, with top journalists, helps spreading the voice because I think too often, we only talk about diversity in a negative way. Or look at the abuse, look at this, look at this other. Why don't we talk about positive stories? Why don't we promote the people who do good things? Why don't we talk about Chris Powell being sitting on the bench of probably the best generation of, of English football, footballers for a number of years? Why don't we talk about Paul Nevin, who's having success as West Ham, next to a very experienced manager like David Moyes? Why don't we talk about Ashley Cole, who is now with the under 21, I want to talk about Maita Molango <laughs> with the PFA. And that's why I'm grateful for you guys to take the time to talk to me and to, to kind of talk about those positive stories about diversity. The abuse, it is in the main racist abuse. There is daily abuse of footballers. Do you have a process that's put in place for anybody, any of them that suffers from abuse? Can they, can they ring you up? that evening i mean i dread to think what jesse lingard got we're recording this wednesday morning dread to think what jesse lingard got last night for making a mistake right that was all he did he made a mistake is there a process in place for jesse lingard to phone the pfa 
this morning, if you so wished, just to deal with that. Yes, yes. To be honest, we've got a, a great EDI team head by a lady called Simone Pound, who's doing a fantastic job, including this recent kind of report that we did with Signify, to show that it's not just a question of, of taking down the post, but you can actually identify who is behind the, those posts. So, so I think the problem that we're having is that the players are fed up because they say, what is the point for me to report that if there's, no, if there's no consequence? And they're right. Right now, people go on to social media, they, they see whatever they, whatever they want. There's a sense of impunity, which is outrageous, you know? So why do we tolerate certain behavior online that would never tolerate on, on the street? So I think I'm very proud of, of my EDI team and of a person who is leading it, because I think having had a report from a company saying that, and we're a union, we don't, we're not such a high-tech kind of fancy type of, of, of organization. So if a union is capable of putting their report saying, it was actually Mark who did that comment and he's a fan of that team, then what needs to happen is one, the social media need to actually go the step of chasing those people, not just taking down the comment, this is easy. Go and chase those people. Second, report to the police, you as a social media, because you're benefiting from those players who make your business grow up. So you cannot just take the good thing about it and then not wanting to, to deal with the solution, the problem in terms of their exposure. So it's going to the police, it's them blocking those accounts and going after those guys. And third, giving the information to the clubs because what the report is showing that you can link normally mm -hmm. those comments and those people yeah. to a specific club. So you need to, to give the information to the clubs for them to ban those people to go to football. And sometimes banning them from going to football is even worse than a criminal offense for them because it's, it's their life. You know, so, so yeah, so I'm hopeful that you can contribute to this. It's, it's a big battle, you know, so certainly it, it ain't going to be me who will we'll, we'll solve it. Uh, all I can do is contribute to it because it, it's, a, it's a collective effort. You know, it will not be solved by the PFA on its own, nor by me on my own, but rather it needs to be a collective effort, I think. And if it doesn't happen, if the social media companies don't listen, will the PFA organize another, another boycott? On, a, on a, a longer boycott? On a, on, a, on a bigger weekend? I think it will come to a stage where the player needs to understand whether going on social media is the, is, is the right thing to do, you know? And then when all of a sudden for social media, there's an impact in terms of advertisement, all of a sudden the people who fund you through advertisement think that it's not right to do, then maybe you act. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's, it's a business model where the more people interact, the more eyeballs, the more eyeballs, the more ad, the more ad, the more money. So if all of a sudden one of the big advertisers said, I've got enough, I'm not putting any money until you act, then maybe there'll be some consequences. The, the problem though, is for all of that, the clubs need social media because you look at what Manchester United did around Ronaldo coming back and what that will do for them commercially. And, and that's the problem with all of this, isn't it? The club needs the social media, but I think we all learned that the companies who fund those advertisements, nowadays they understand that purpose is very important. And their customers want to see respect, want to see diversity, and, and this is the thing that I think some social media are, are under, underestimating. So as we've seen, some of the big brands have said, you know, well, I, I'm no longer sponsoring this person because it doesn't represent my value. So I think sponsorship is going in the direction where it's no longer about visibility. It's about purpose. Thank you for, for giving us your time. And hopefully in six months or so, we could check in with you and, and see where we're at and, and, and see what the issues are then. With great pleasure. I think, you know, I'm very happy to open my book 
because my book is transparent, I've got nothing to hide in that book. Of, of course, I can never promise results because results are difficult to achieve, but I think we're here for the right reason. We're here with, in good faith and, and hopefully we can make a contribution. So thank you for, for giving us a chance to, to talk about what we do. Good luck. Wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that's it. Thanks to Maheta and Dan Bardell back on this feed on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. Uh, I'm back on Tuesday for the Athletic Football Podcast and then Matt will be back with us next week for the Business of Sport Podcast. And if you're not a subscriber, don't forget that you can head to theathletic.com slash footballpod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.